Welcome to Distributing Solar. We speak with entrepreneurs and experts working in the off-grid solar industry around the world, bringing to life how distributed solar is changing lives in emerging markets. In this conversation, we speak with Jay Patel, co-founder and CEO of Enlight Institute. Enlight provides solar recruitment, training and assessment services for companies hiring rural youth in sub-Saharan Africa. He's also co-founder of Village Energy, a last-mile solar distribution company based in Uganda. We speak about the need for technical and soft skills training for solar professionals, the energy landscape in Uganda, where less than a quarter of the population has access to electricity, and why there's a high need for training and local investments in the energy industry. We hope you enjoy this episode. Jay, welcome to Distributing Solar. Thank you so much. Really great to be on. You've started two solar companies in Africa, but your career started at Google in San Francisco. Can you tell us more about your background and how did you come to start Enlight and Village Energy? Yeah, it's been a pretty crazy story. So in university, I went to UPenn. I did a lot of international development work. That's pretty much what I studied. And I was very involved in a conference series around clean energy projects. Always been an area of interest for me. After leaving Penn, I ended up doing an AmeriCorps program called City in New York, which I did until 2010. And then after that, I jumped to Google, which was really an unexpected jump. But the opportunity came up to join their advertising team and started off in customer service and ended up in sales, where I spent about five years working with a bunch of different brands, focusing on the small and medium business segment. So it was definitely like a very fulfilling and enjoyable time there. But as time went on, I started to get a little bit more anxious about, okay, what am I really doing with my life? And, and what is it that I actually want to do longer term? And so in 2013, 2014, I started getting back into the social entrepreneurship world, started volunteering to help connect Google to different people and started attending conferences. And I developed an interest in clean energy and specifically off-grid solar, which is essentially a combination of international development as well as being something that's more private sector led. And Google actually has an office in Nairobi and they were working on some off-grid solar projects which I was really interested in getting into. So I managed to convince my manager to give me a three-month sabbatical and go out to Nairobi, where I ended up meeting a bunch of different solo entrepreneurs and ended up coming to Uganda to meet with a few more companies and ended up meeting a social entrepreneur named Abu Musuza, who is Ugandan. And he had previously worked at Ashoka and he was an Ashoka fellow himself. And he had started a solar company with an American back in 2008 called Village Energy. And so I was on ground and I volunteered just to help him relaunch his startup around a new business model, uh, around training solar technicians and ended up leaving Google. And it's been a crazy ride since then. Tell us more about Enlight. How did you start the company? What do you work on? Absolutely. So while we were at Village Energy, we basically developed this new business model around setting up a series of rural shops and training local youth in those areas to be solar technicians and salespeople who could not only sell small solar products, but also install and maintain large solar systems. And we realized early on that human capital was a massive need for us, but also for other companies. And so in early 2016, I developed this concept for a traveling solar academy that could essentially go into rural areas, train the youth in the skills that they need, and then they could be employed by a number of companies, including Village Energy, but also others. Because you know we might only need one solar technician in a particular area, but there's certainly more demand from other companies. It just makes sense to train people for multiple companies rather than just one. And I realized, wait, like we don't know anything about 
setting up an academy. I mean, we've done some trainings, but nothing really on this level. Fortunately, I had a friend from my AmeriCorps days, uh, and she was actually just finishing up her master's at Columbia in international development with a focus on education in emergency market. And so convinced her, hey, why don't you come out to Uganda and after you graduate and kind of help us launch this academy? So she came out in the middle of 2016. And over the course of the next year and a half, we ran pilot trainings and eventually got connected to Signify Foundation, which is Philips Lighting. If you may not know, but Philips and Philips Lighting have now split into two separate companies and Philips Lighting is now called Signify. So it's called Signify Foundation. And so they were really interested. And so they essentially funded us to have a pilot, a full eight-week solar technician training. And then talking to different companies, they said, okay, you know, we love the idea. There's definitely a huge need for training services, but you need to split out from Village Energy because there's just conflicts of interest. So that's how we came to incorporate Enlight in early 2018 as a completely separate startup that's really solving human capital for the entire sector. I'd love to dive into Enlight in more detail, but can you tell us more about Uganda as a country and also its energy infrastructure? Yeah, so Uganda is a fascinating country. It's about 40 million people. It is a country that is really exploding in population. And out of the 40, 42 million people, right now, only about 20 to 25% of the population is on the grid. Even in Kampala, the capital of the country, uh, it's only about 50% of the population is on the grid. So you definitely have a lot of need for energy access. Uh, a few interesting things about Uganda, it is a very green country. I tell people it's like Ireland on the equator because it has a lot of water resources. It has been a country that, unlike other parts of Africa, does not have generally a problem with food. Most Ugandans have some access to land to grow crops on. And so it is a little bit of a different environment. It's a much more uh, highly dense part of the, of, the, of the continent. Not as dense as Rwanda, which is right next door, but it's certainly a country that is, is quite small geographically. Working in this country is also quite interesting. I think because it's an English-speaking country, it tends to be a place where like, a lot of expat investment is now going into. It's definitely less developed than neighboring Kenya, but it is a, a place that has attracted a lot of solar companies coming in to try to do something there. And what makes it also quite interesting to be doing any sort of pilots around distribution is that because it is fairly geographically central, everything is in Kampala, and then you can get to every part of the country within 10 or 12 hours via bus, versus a country like, say, Tanzania, which is four times the size, but only maybe 20% more people, it's much more spread out and it's much more difficult to set up a national base of operations that can cover the whole country. So in Kampala, you definitely see all of these solar companies right next to each other, and it makes for a very, very strong ecosystem in terms of entrepreneurs supporting each other. And you spoke a bit about the lack of energy access that, that a lot of Ugandan population has. So between 20 to 25% of the population has access to electricity. What are the alternatives that people are using when they don't have access to electricity? So it depends on what they're using it for. The biggest two areas that people really end up needing some sort of energy source for is lighting and for cooking. So with cooking, you're going to see a lot of cook stove. It's a lot of biomass based things like wood or charcoal. And there's a lot of companies, as many solar companies there are, there are even more companies that are selling various types of cook stoves, some that are more or less efficient, some that use different kind of briquettes or, or fuel sources. In terms of lighting, you're going to be using these tabulas, which is essentially these like lanterns and the indoor air pollution is horrible. It can cost a pretty penny for the average family over the course of a year. So it's bad in pretty much every possible way. 
And so solar, especially at the Pico Lantern level, has the ability to not only be cheaper and healthier, but also leads to a lot of positive development outcomes as well. Let's talk more about the solar industry then in Uganda and your experiences working both with Village Energy, but also with Enlight. Can you tell us more about what types of solar systems are typically being implemented on the projects that you've worked on? Are we talking about mini grids? Are we talking about solar home systems or Pico solutions? And can you tell us more about the types of solar companies that have emerged within uh, Uganda? Generally, you can divide the solar industry into on-grid, mini grid, and off-grid. In the African context, there is less on-grid in countries like Uganda, but generally the solar industry in Uganda is mostly focused on either mini-grid or off-grid. And there isn't been a lot of mini-grid activity. So to define mini-grid is where you're hooking up a bunch of different customers to one system, and you have some sort of metering or payment system. The reason that it hasn't taken off in Uganda is largely regulatory, because you need to have like a power purchasing agreement, uh, you need to allow for net metering. There's just a lot of regulations around essentially becoming your own utility that have not been quite solved, as well as issues of like what happens because the grid is expanding. If the grid reaches your area, how is the mini grid going to tie into that? And what's the business model? And what we've seen actually with mini grid is that even if they hook up a village, there just isn't enough energy demand. People still can't afford appliances. Uganda is actually in a very interesting area where it's utility, I believe, is one of the only ones on the continent that's actually profitable. But the way that it's managed to stay profitable is by focusing on customers who can actually use electricity and warrant the cost of getting a wire set up and maintained. But that does mean that a lot of poor rural customers are kind of being left out on the lurch. To give you an idea, like even if the utility pulls in your front yard and the wire is connected to your house, that could still be three, four, or $500 in terms of cost for the utility to actually set it up and send an engineer out and make sure the system is working. So mini-grid is not really taken off in Uganda yet, uh, the way that it has in some other countries. So the focus has really been more on off-grid. With off-grid, it really is divided into one, you have the Pico Solar Lanterns. So you're going to have anything from like a $5 single light that can essentially replace a single lantern and it's good for the kitchen up to 30 40 dollar lanterns which are similar to what you might actually be able to buy to go camping here in the united states or in europe they might have a phone charging as part of it which is also what a lot of customers are looking for then you get into the home system space which is going to start at two lights two three four lights maybe a radio maybe a fan uh, and that's going to be in like say let's say the 200 dollar range 150 to 200 dollars and then going all the way up to larger systems for micro businesses that might cost maybe a thousand or two thousand dollars, which might include a fridge or some other aspects for productive use. And they get all the way up into much more customized systems that can range up to twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars and up. So you have a pretty broad range. Now, the reason the solar industry has been taking off is because uh, starting about ten years ago, there became this thing called uh, pay as you go. Home systems have become the big growth area here. So that's why you have a bunch of companies, the biggest ones being Mcopa, but you have Zola slash Off-Grid Electric. You have Phoenix, you have D-Light, Greenlight Planet, Azuri, Mobisol, SolarNow. I mean, there's a lot of companies out there that are really focused on this home system market. And that's where you've seen the biggest clients get up to, say, a million customers across East Africa. That's where most of the activity in the off-grid sector has gone into home systems. So as part of that, there's been a couple of shifts 
when this first started, when the companies like, for example, D-Life first started as two Stanford graduates who just started developing these lanterns, it was really given it seen as like an NGO-driven thing. Like, oh, lanterns for people who don't have access to electricity. There wasn't much money seen in that. Early on, you had all these lantern companies. And even by, by 2014, 2015, when I came to Uganda, you still had a lot of them out there. Over the last five years, as this has become essentially like a mortgage market for solar systems, you're now seeing a lot of major money start to move into the space from investors, but also from multinationals, especially coming out of Europe, especially out of France. For example, Angie bought Phoenix. And there's been some other deals as well as you actually start to see, oh, off-grid is actually considered a major growth area for energy companies. And it's been mostly private sector-led meaning that they're now focusing on the customers who might be able to afford a TV. And they're really, even if you're talking about the base of the pyramid, they're focusing on the top of the base of the pyramid. You still have 30 to 40% of the population that could not even afford a lantern. Even a 5 or $6 lantern would be too much for them. Yet at the same time, putting a chip into a lantern just costs too much money to make it worthwhile. And so you have this entire bottom 30 to 40% of the population that will never be able to be reached through purely commercial means because of stagnant income. And so as a result, there are a lot of questions being raised like, hey, has the focus shifted too far to profit only and away from the impact, which was the impetus for this industry in the first place? And do we need to think about things such as subsidies, which is a dirty word in some quarters, but might still be necessary to really get to that point of universal electrification? The second is really, you know, these massive loan portfolios. Is this really sustainable? A lot of companies talk about people moving up the energy ladder. Oh, they started a lantern, then they moved to a home system, then they moved to a TV and then a fridge. But that involves incomes growing up. And there are energy savings. Like over the course of, say, three to four years, a family using a home system could probably save $50 or $100, which is definitely like a, a large amount of money. It means that kid could go to school, but it's not necessarily going to move that family into a higher income bracket. And so now the focus is now turning to what we call productive use of energy. So energy that leads to increased either incomes or access to services they may not otherwise get access to. So Village Energy, what we've done over the last few years is we've we started off by selling everything from lanterns to home systems to larger, uh, to larger solutions. And now Village Energy is really focused on customized solar installations for productive use, installations for schools, so that schools can now have laptops and internet and lighting. Then you have for agriculture, you can start having grain milling, uh, refrigeration, and other value-add additions. For shops in rural areas, you can have power to that you can have a fridge, you can sell cold drinks and milk and, and, and other perishable products. So there's a lot of interest and excitement around, around productive use. But how you finance that, how you are able to provide the access to markets, there's a lot more that goes into creating a, a great productive use ecosystem. Like it, it, You can give a farmer the ability to grow more crops or to store more crops, cut the post-harvest crop loss. But if you don't have good access to markets, then they won't do the farmer any good and the crops will just die. And then they'll suddenly have this loan for the system that isn't really leading to higher income. So it takes more of an ecosystem-based approach and bringing different players together to figure out how we can probably support that market. But that's a market that Village Energy has seen a, a lot, a lot of activity in. And so as time goes on over the next few years, we're going to see a lot more focus on productive use. I'd love to speak more about productive energy use in a few minutes, but can you tell us more about Enlight and what that gap is in the market and how do you work as an organization? 
When we first started, we were thinking largely around technical lines, like we need more solar technicians, especially in rural areas where it can be difficult to find people who've gone to vocational school. And even if they have, they haven't gotten any experience in solar. And so we started off by thinking this is like technically driven, but also that these solar technicians need soft and professional skills that are lacking as well. Your solar technician is not just a technical person, it's your customer service rep. They're the person who shows up at the house to do the installation and it's their credibility and their communication skills that basically determine if the client is going to trust you and refer you. And so technicians need a lot more training on that side. When we started the Solar Academy, it was like an eight-week solar training that we ran twice in, in two different parts of the country. And in each cohort, we have about 15 people. The idea was to train solar technicians and get them placed at different solar companies. And we were able to place the majority of them, or they found work on their own within the industry. But in speaking with the companies after, I think one of the learnings was that actually it's more salespeople that the off-grid energy, energy industry was struggling with more than the technical skills. And that it's really the soft skills, the professional skills, employability skills that all people needed technicians, salespeople, frontline managers, operational staff, headquarters staff, even upper-level management, they were really struggling with a lot of these things like problem-solving, timeliness, reporting. And so across the industry, turnover is a massive issue. I know at Village Energy, we've run through so many salespeople, managers, and it costs a lot of time and it costs a lot of money and a lot of bandwidth goes into it. Uh, employees have committed fraud and ruined customer relationships. And so human capital is just a massive, massive drag. And the education system in a country like Uganda, even for university graduates, they're just not producing the level of talent that is necessary for a productive workforce. And so with companies who are getting these intake of graduates or even people in the village who haven't gone to university or even finished high school, there's the sense of, okay, like what do we do about this? And so what you end up seeing as a result is a company might do a training for like 20 or 30 sales agents. And they say, okay, we're not going to invest a lot of money in them or time in them because we don't know if they're going to succeed. So that they maybe get some training on product knowledge and then that's pretty much it. And after two days, they're sent into the field to sell. And it's basically sink or swim. Who can sell in the first month keeps going and those who can't just end up dropping out. And so you see that out of a cohort of, say, 30 to 40 people, you might have attrition of 60 or 70%. And so it's just a few people who, one way or another, just happen to have those skills. And that results in a very distorted labor market where there's so many job openings, yet even though the unemployment rate's so high, it's so hard to fill them. And people who do show success end up getting poached by other companies. And so you see the same people jumping from company to company and, and hiring a sales manager who's effective with experience becomes incredibly expensive. And so we're looking at this and we're saying, okay, there's talent out there. You know, there's people who will work hard, are very intelligent, especially women, refugees. One thing is an aside, Uganda has one of the largest refugee populations in the world from South Sudan and Congo and even some people from the Rwandan genocide who never went back, who have been in Uganda for the last 25 years. And Uganda actually has one of the most liberal refugee policies in the world, where not only are refugees allowed to live and work and move anywhere in the country, 
but they can also get land. And so that means that what we're doing for rural Ugandans can also be applied to these refugee camps as well. So there's a unique opportunity for us to to work on interventions that can directly impact refugees, which is really amazing. So what we're seeing is that there is this demand from employers for the talent. They don't know what to do. They don't feel like they have the resources to do it on their own. You're seeing this demand from youth who are looking for jobs and they're looking for income employment opportunities. And so what can we do to really solve that gap? And that's what has led us to evolve from focusing on technical trainings to on-the-job coaching, which is what we do now. Can you tell us a bit more about how your typical engagement with a solar company would look like? Maybe to take a step back, you've mentioned two modes of working. One is to work directly with the youth or the students and to provide the training capabilities to them. And then the second way is to engage with a larger company and provide training for their employees. So can you tell us more about how your typical engagement in those scenarios work, if that is the right characterization? And if not, can you explain how the structure is with the customers? In regards to your characterization, I think that's that's apt. And we've moved away from working directly with the youth on their own as individuals for a couple of reasons. One, it's just really difficult to make a sustainable business model around that. We are for profit, although we are a social enterprise. Uh, and the reason for that is that we know that productive employees and having productive employees can unlock a lot of economic value. And so we believe that if we can figure that out, then there is a path to self-sustainability and we don't have to keep relying on donor funding for our training programs. But it's not going to be with the youth. It's really going to lie at the companies. And so we've kind of shifted focus to working with the companies. And the way we've been working with them, so an engagement might play out that let's say a solar company says, hey, come in. I have just hired or I have been employing, say, 10 youth as sales agents, uh, but their sales are really lagging. And we believe that it's due to, in part, they don't have good written communication skills and sometimes they're just not timely. They face some challenges with customer communication and teamwork. Can you come in and help us? And so what we're doing is we're setting up a network of local coaches around the country that can work with these companies. So we'll go into the employer and say, okay, let's let's figure out like what's the role, what what are the expectations and the key skill sets, and where do you see are the current gaps in your team? And then we will start doing bi-weekly one-on-one coaching which each person on that team that they want us to coach. So one of our coaches who could be based in Kampala if the engagement is in the capital, or if it's in a rural area, say a five, six hour drive away, we're going to have a coach who's in that part of the country who speaks that local language. And that coach would come in and provide one-on-one coaching to that person every two weeks. And it would start as maybe like a three-month engagement where you come in on the first session and say, okay, this is where your employer is saying that you know, you're not doing this, this, and this. How does this reflect on you? And how do you feel like this paints a picture about you? Is it accurate? Is it not? And really get them started on this train of self-awareness and critical feedback, but also support and in the safe space where maybe they are able to open up about challenges that they would not feel comfortable going to their boss. Because especially in a lot of, you know, Uganda has 52 tribal groups. So every tribe has its own culture. But in a lot of tribes, especially in the central part of Uganda, there is definitely a culture where 
there is a reluctance to say no or to challenge authority. So if your boss asks you, hey, can you do this? The answer is yes. And you're afraid to admit to your boss that you don't know how to do it. And so there is a culture where they just say, yes, 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 we can do it. But then they don't know how to do it. They don't know where they can turn to for help. And then they just stop showing up to work or stop answering the phone. And the employer can't figure out why. This employee is unable to act in a professional manner. So I think this coaching can really help us to start unlocking these sort of fears and put in place action steps for them to implement between the sessions that can help them get better. And then we stay in contact with the employer and be calling the manager every week to be like, hey, how is John or how is Mary doing on the job? Are you noticing differences in the way they're acting and their targets? And so it is an ongoing iterative process. And we're seeing so much demand from companies. Since we launched this new model in the last few months, we've already signed up several clients. COVID has kind of put everything on hold, but we have a, we're getting a lot of interest now, even from companies outside of the solar sector. And so we're seeing that we're really tapping into this real desire to figure out a way to uplevel their staff in a way that's sustainable and scalable. Are you focused primarily on Uganda at the moment, or are you working in other countries as well? Right now, we are focused on Uganda, but we have gotten interest from companies in Kenya, Ethiopia, Tanzania. And we have also gotten inquiries around our solar technical trainings further afield, for example, in West Africa. So we still want to be able to offer those technical trainings. I think that those technical trainings will come in more handy for mini grid projects where, let's say, you're doing a one-time setup of a solar installation, maybe a 200 kilowatt installation in, say, a rural part of Nigeria, and you need to hire 50 laborers in order to do the work. And these laborers need to be trained on how to install the panel. And so the question is, do we have our engineers come in and do this, or do we have somebody come in before and and kind of prep them so that we can hit the ground running in terms of installation? But in terms of the coaching for right now, we're really focusing on East Africa. Great. And if we can speak a bit about the technical training as well, what does a typical training program look like? What are the main skills that are lacking for some of the students or participants in your program? What are the popular misconceptions around solar that you typically encounter? So on the technical side, we typically try to work with people who already have some experience. I think one of the learnings from not only the two training academies, but we've also run technical trainings on behalf of aid agencies and NGOs and refugee camps and other rural areas. And what we've seen is that you need to have some sort of background in electricity. All technical training comes from where are they starting from and where you need them to be. And that really determines everything. So a lot of the off-grid solar companies who are interested in our technical training work there's not that much technical stuff that needs to be done. It's, it's more actually like technical troubleshooting. So understanding like, okay, this is how a solar system works. This is what could go wrong. And, and basically training your sales agent in order to troubleshoot a system, which involves pressing buttons or cleaning the panel or something. That's something that can be taught in a few days. But if you're talking about, say, can you install a 500-watt solar system on the roof There's a lot more skill set around understanding how the wires go together, what are the different problems of the batteries. And then the next level is, can you like independently design a solar system? That's That's an even higher level that honestly takes months, if not years, to go from nothing to being able to get to that level. 
So that is to say that all our trainings that we've done have been somewhat customized, but usually involve learning how the solar system works in the different components and then the basics of, of how to put the pieces together and then troubleshoot when they go wrong. You've spoken a bit already about the change in focus and shifting from a more technical approach to a more soft skills-based approach, but how else has your business model changed? And if you could speak a bit about what the overall approach is for your business model, is it mostly driven as a social enterprise with maybe donations subsidizing the costs, or is it intended to be a fully for-profit enterprise going forward? Yeah, it's evolved over the years. I think grant funding has been a bit part of activities because in part, we are working with some of the the poorest populations in the world and trying to provide a high level of service to them and and help underrepresented groups get into clean energy. So for example, like we did a recruitment pilot with a solar cook stove company in the fall where we were working specifically with girls aged like 18, 19, 20, who had not graduated from high school, but had gone through a livelihood development program. And so these are not necessarily youth that a company would have chosen to work with on their own, but we're willing to give them the chance in part because of grant funding. So we definitely see that in our social mission around really reaching the underprivileged youth, women, refugees, there is a role for grant funding. And we definitely continue to to work on grant-funded projects. But in terms of building a sustainable business model, we're really focusing now on the coaching. And the reason for that is because, number one, it's an ongoing process. So once you, once you start working with the youth, it, it keeps going. And, and we found that the customer's willingness to pay for coaching was much higher, in part because you're not taking the youth away from the job for long periods of time. You know, they can keep working. They're just coming in. And number two, we are making it cost affordable with our model because we're able to provide coaching for multiple people in, say, the same branch. And so there's economies of scale around this that can be leveraged to allow us to be able to provide it at a a relatively cost-effective price. Particularly since organizing trainings upcountry, so much of that actually goes not into what you would expect it to go into. It It doesn't necessarily go into salaries or into the tools. It goes into food, catering, lodging for multiple people at the same time. It gets very, very expensive. And we're finding that being able to work with the youth on the job and having a local coach who doesn't need to travel too far or stay overnight allows us to drive down the cost to the level that companies are willing to pay. And so based on that, I mean, we're really excited by the by the revenue potential of all of this is happening. And, and we definitely are pushing for self-sustainability. For the companies you've worked with so far, have you been able to have a meaningful impact on the turnover rates of the companies? And if so, what do you think are the major driving forces for trying to reduce turnover? Uh, ask me again in a few months. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is uh, it, that is actually a, a key performance metric that we're working on with our clients. I think COVID has kind of uh, disrupted a lot of implementation here, but uh, absolutely, I think reducing the attrition rate is uh, is a very very key metric that we'd be engaging in our success. Now, the reasons behind that attrition can vary. So yes, we have, for example, uh, turnover due to job issues such as fraud or unproductivity, but we also have other more cultural issues. In a lot of cases, we've seen women leave the job force because they've been under pressure by their family to get married or to have a child. Of course, when a woman has a child and she's unable to work, that also leads to them dropping out of the workforce as well. 
to say that we can completely solve such a problem is, I think, not necessarily reasonable that we can say, okay, well, all attrition is going to be reduced. But I do think that we can start to reduce it to a rate where employers are able to manage it and they're able to work around it. And can you tell us more about your team? Where do you find your employees? What are you looking for? And how do you look at your training process for them as well? Yeah, so we try to have a pretty small team. You know, for example, Village Energy, which I'm still on the board of, we have about 20 employees. And and by the way, I'm also really proud to say that, you know, Village Energy is now the first solar company in East Africa that I know of where not only do we have 100% local staff, we no longer have any expats working at the company, but the majority of the leadership team, including the CEO, is female. So it's completely locally led, female led solar company. There, and that actually, um, the CEO of Village Energy is actually an Acumen fellow like me. So I went through the Acumen Fellows Program in 2017. Abu, the original founder of Village Energy, is himself an Acumen fellow. And, and so being a part of that network has, has given us access to in- incredible people to not only advise us, um, but in some cases has been a source of employee referrals. Enlight is much smaller. We only have on the ground in Uganda about five people. So my co-founder, Anya, and a few other staff. So our, our goal is to try to stay small and lean, but also quite committed. And again, referrals through our networks, it plays a big role in, in finding good employees. And of course, there's more traditional sources such as job postings. But yeah, we are definitely trying to model inside our company what we want to implement in other companies. So a lot of the coaching and the performance management that we are helping our clients implement, we're in the process of implementing ourselves to make sure that we're walking the walk in terms of, of developing our own employees. And that's an ongoing process. But I can definitely say I've been seeing huge improvements in the last year in terms of the capability of our team in order to execute well and to move quickly. Great. So we've spoken a bit about some of the challenges around the upskilling that's required for the workforce, in particular in developing some of their softer skills. But what do you think are the broader challenges facing the solar industry, either in Uganda or more broadly across East Africa, that you think needs to be overcome in order to accelerate growth within the sector? There are a few areas. I truly believe that human capital is one of the biggest challenges that, and maybe perhaps the biggest operational challenge that many of these companies are facing in terms of ability to scale because it is a very people-intensive business. I think as well, though, there is a, there is a few debates within the solar industry. And perhaps the, the biggest is, what is the, is the future of the industry a few vertically integrated companies that do everything from manufacturing the system all the way through, through to through distribution? Or are you seeing more of, say, an open source model where you're going to have a bunch of different manufacturers and the finance is going to come from a bunch of different sources and even a bunch of different retailers. And so it's everything's unbundled. And I think that that is a debate that's going on right now in the industry in terms of, number one, um, these vertically integrated models are very complex. It's hard to be profitable while you're doing four or five things right. And even when we're talking to some of our companies, uh, one thing that we are seen traction when we speak with these companies is saying, look, you can hire your own in-house coaches. You can hire your own in-house trainers. You might even have the money to do so. But do you really want to when you have to deal with importation, sales, supply chain management, credit, 
And in some of these cases, managing the balance between credit and distribution is difficult. That's why you're seeing now there's this company, SolarNow, and they've been one of the companies that has actually managed to hit profitability. And they're one of the larger solar companies in Uganda. And they're actually splitting the credit business and the distribution business into two separate companies because they're seeing that it's just too hard to do both really well at the same time. And so I do see the potential for all sorts of additional unbundling start to happen. And I think that that's that's something that we're going to have to take forward to see how that plays out. But the other question comes back to financing. And it's related to the unbundling, but it's also just the fact that financing in, in these markets is a very risky business because of currency fluctuations. And you've seen the Ugandan shilling drop by 20, 30% in the last three, four years. But most of the money that's coming in for these sort of loans is actually coming from abroad. It's coming from the US or Europe, development banks, impact investors. You're not really seeing local business get involved. So it's still a sector that overall is very, very expat and foreign driven. And how do you go from there to an industry where you have local entrepreneurs really succeeding that may not have the access to capital that an American or European does? And how do you see local financial institutions getting involved, local banks being willing to invest into the sector so that some of the profits of the sector go back into the country and help to grow the local economy? And do you have any thoughts on what it takes for us to get to that future? Is it a matter of time? Does there need to be a greater buildup of wealth and education and training within a growing middle class, which is what we typically see in other emerging markets, for example, in Asia? What do you think will really help us to get to that next stage? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's, it is human capital. And when you look at the China model, it kind of happened organically in part because there was so much factory work. And so you had these unskilled laborers becoming factory workers, and they generated enough income to start being able to send their kids to school, start getting enough for the local governments to really make massive investments in education. And so that's kind of what I would say is the China model of development uh, and growing to a society where you have a lot of people in middle income. You're not seeing that for the most part in Africa. This might change. And I do think COVID is starting to show the limits of global supply chains and showing the limits of not having your own indigenous industry in some of these areas. So I do think there's going to be more of a push to have more manufacturing in Africa. However, because of automation and AI, you're just not going to see the same level of opportunities for unskilled manufacturing jobs that you did in China 20, 30 years ago. It's not that there's going to be 5 million factory jobs in Uganda and you don't need a high school education. Even the manufacturing that's coming is going to require more skills in order to be globally competitive. So I do think that the only solution for a country like Uganda or Kenya is to really, really invest in people and really get in the skills they need to attract more services industries and more high tech manufacturing. So I do think that the way that we can kind of even the play and play it a little bit is by investing in human capital. And that's why I think Enlight, we're trying to do our part. And so what are the goals for Enlight as a company? What do you hope to achieve in two years and five years from now? 
Well, in the next couple of years, you know, our, our real focus is on proving that not only is our interventions effective, um, but it's also self-sustaining and profitable. And so we're really, really driving, like especially this year, driving towards the scale up our coaching model and start building this data-based track record of not just coaching X number of people, but also demonstrating how this investment in bumping up the skill sets in certain areas is translating to the results on the ground and increased revenue. We really want to build that direct correlation, if not causation, that, hey, if you really invest in as employing these certain areas, they're going to end up increasing your productivity, increasing you know, your top line revenue by X amount. And so that's what we're really focusing on. And I do think that we're going to get to you know, a profitable model in the next couple of years, working with hundreds or thousands of youth. And then the next stage will be, okay, well, how do we get from there to say 5 million or 10 million? And that's still a work in progress. But we do believe that a lot of it starts with collecting good data in terms of our interventions and our outputs so that that can help us chart the path forward to what would a, a technology-based solution look like. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jay, for speaking to us about the company. We like to end our conversations with a couple of quick fire questions just to understand more about you as a person and more about the company as well. So to start with, where did your company's name come from? I actually don't know. <laughs> I was traveling when it was my co-founder who actually came up with the name. Uh, she, uh, we were brainstorming. They were doing a little team brainstorm around the name, and 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 that was something that stuck. But I'm not sure what was the original inspiration behind it. Are there any books that you recommend to our listeners, or books that have changed the way you think or influenced your thinking about the off-grid sector? Well, I think the sector, like if you're interested in kind of like the early stages of the sector, there is a book about the Bangladeshi that talks about Grameen Shakti, which is the sister company of Green Bank. And this was back from like the late 90s, early 2000s. And it's called Green Energy for a Billion Poor by Nancy uh, Wimmer. But the truth is, is that the sector has evolved so quickly that there's no book that has been able to keep pace. However, I do recommend that for those who are really interested in the sector, uh, Sun Connect is a basically summary of all the different news and writers that are talking about the space. And then Next Billion is another website that has a lot of long form and very, very thoughtful posts around impact investing and also the off-grid solar industry. And those I really try to keep up to speed on. And if someone is looking to start getting involved in the off-grid solar space or in emerging markets, either as an entrepreneur or as an investor, what advice would you give them? Ooh, that's a good question. I will say that, first off, it really depends on where this person is. If they're a Westerner who wants to try to do something in, say, Africa, to jump in without any connections, without any experience, it's not impossible. But it, it really takes a lot of networking and trying to understand the dynamics and, and where you can add value. I do think that there is a huge amount of potential to engage the African diaspora. I do see that, especially in West Africa, there's been a lot less focus on off-grid solar than there has been in, say, Kenya, which at this point is pretty much a saturated market. So a lot of it depends on like, okay, where is your particular area of focus what can you provide, whether it's money, whether it's networks, whether it's just your own expertise, and and start talking to people in the space. Uh, the one great thing about the industry that I've found is that at the end of the day, 
it is a for-profit industry, but it's it's one that most of the people in the space got into it for some sort of social impact. And so as a result, people tend to be really supportive of each other and um, really open to connecting. So that would, I would probably be my main advice is to to really find out who's who's in the space, who's exciting, and start reaching out and start having these conversations and then figure out where you can add value. But I will say that the market is more mature now than it was, say, five years ago. Five years ago, if you were just two guys with an idea, you could get funded quite easily. But now it's much more established players and you're going into a market with a lot of competition. So I do think that if you're going to start something, a new business in the space, it should be in some of these ancillary services. Like, are there, is there software or technology or other solutions that can help support this industry rather than, hey, I'm going to go off and design a solar system? for distribution. And to close, what are your predictions for the off-grid solar sector for the next five years? I expect that we're going to see these distinctions between on-grid, off-grid, and mini-grid are going to start to break down. I think you're going to see a lot more people, even in developed societies, um, start to look at pure off-grid solar systems as a good alternative to the grid. And you're going to start to see more of these mini-grid, off-grid systems in places like Uganda maybe start to get connected up to the grid. I think a lot of it's going to depend on storage, battery technology, and can we continue to bring the price of storage down? At this point, the cost problem in the solar industry is not actually about solar generation. Panels already generate power at a cheaper price than, than most other sources, and that price continues to fall. But battery storage, while it's decreased a lot, it needs to fall much, much further for it to be economically viable as, as a solution. Right now, most off-grid solar systems kind of operate from the mindset of, well, we can't get the grid. But if the grid is available, typically the grid is going to be cheaper than an off-grid system. But if the battery cost falls far enough, then that could change. And if that happens, then I think the industry is going to open up in a, in a massive, massive way. Great. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jay. Thanks for joining us at Distributing Solar. Absolutely. Pleasure to be on here. That was our conversation with Jay Patel from Enlight Institute. If you have any questions or comments, please visit us on our website at www.distributingsolar.com. We have notes from our podcast, useful sources and contact details available.